Father in heaven, we're mindful today that you are on your throne, that you rule in the affairs of men, that you are a God above all, that you know all, and that your will will prevail. And we humble ourselves before you this morning, Father, knowing your greatness and our smallness. We ask that you will look down on us with favor. We know that you are kind and generous, and so we ask your blessings to continue. We ask also, Father, that we might uh, not only accept those blessings, but be appreciative of them and extol your name because of your goodness. Father, our hearts are touched and troubled today because of the distressing news about Brian Blunt. We pray for peace for him, for his family, and for your guidance in whatever is done. Now, Father, bless us as we study. We're thankful that we can look at your word and benefit from it. We ask all this through Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it, please, and keep it open. We're going to begin our study by reading Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forever. When you first looked at Psalm 131, your reaction may have been, how are we going to get an entire class out of this? Three verses, and that's all. And yet, as you look at the outline that I hope you picked up on Psalm 131, written by Eddie Parrish, you see plenty of things that are there to study and consider. As we've done before, uh, we look first at the superscription, that uninspired comment above the psalm. And it attributes this psalm to David as are 70 other, 72 other psalms directly attributed to him. David may have written more than 73. He may have written less. We don't know for sure. But these superscriptions are ancient and typically considered to be accurate. And so we, in our understanding, accept that it is a psalm of David. It's also called a song of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. Ascent is to go up. And all of the psalms from number 120 through 134 carry that same heading. They are all considered to be songs of ascent. 
it's commonly understood that this term, a song of ascent, was used for psalms that were sung as Jews were going up to Jerusalem. If you ever look on a map that has elevations, you will know that Jerusalem is higher than the area around it. And so from different places in Israel on annual festivals and special occasions, Jews would be going up to Jerusalem to celebrate. And these songs were evidently sung as they made their way to Jerusalem. may have been sung on other occasions as well. And, and if that's true, and I believe it is, if it's true, it means that this psalm wasn't just for David. It wasn't just about him. It wasn't just for him. It meant... It was meant to reflect feelings of all people who would use it as their own. Other Jews, besides David, could share this same sentiment that's in the psalm that David wrote. You and I can still share the same sentiment that David used in the psalm. Two, two things particularly caught my attention as I began to prepare for this class and study this psalm. The, the first thing, and, and these are not critical by any means, the first thing, when I looked at the resources for psalms that I had in my personal library, I was somewhat surprised that at least five writers of books or booklets on the psalms didn't even mention this psalm. They ignored it. They talked about a lot of others, wrote about a lot of other psalms, but not this psalm. Uh, even three others that I consulted uh, barely had one page of the book that dealt with this psalm. So they looked at it quickly and got over it. Now they didn't say anything about the value of the psalms. It just says that they didn't pay much attention to it. And yet it's interesting that a number of sermons have been preached on this psalm uh, over the years. And a number of uh, preachers have thought this is a psalm worth preaching on. Um, the, the second thing that caught my attention was that I noticed that the psalm is designated in different ways by different people. Um, one writer called it the quieted soul. Someone else called it the childlike spirit. Someone else, like a satisfied child. Another, soul satisfaction in God. And then your outline, written by Eddie, emphasizes what he calls simple faith. And those are all interesting ways of looking at the same psalm. It also shows, I think, that as people look at something, they may have just a slightly different perspective or say it in a slightly different way. In order to help you remember this psalm easily, I think you could divide it in the three verses into three thoughts. And this is not on your outline, but I share it with you anyway. Verse 1 is a renunciation. A renunciation. Verse 2 is a declaration 
and verse 3 is an exhortation. So you have renunciation, declaration, exhortation. You, you may find that helpful to remember the psalm. Let's look at it. In verse 1, David has renounced two things specifically. And the first of them is pride. He says that his heart is not haughty. O Lord, O Lord, my heart is not haughty. This is not a boast. It's not saying, look at me. I'm proud of the fact that I don't have any pride. He's not doing that. This is a confession. A confession that he knows that he is to be humble. And I think we can easily see how it would have been possible for David to be haughty. We don't know for sure that he wrote this. We don't know for sure when he wrote this. But as I think about David's life and as you think about it, there are a number of times in David's life that he could have been haughty. Hey, if you're just a young man and you kill a giant, a giant who who defied the armies of Israel and everybody else was afraid of, and you're the guy that kills him, wouldn't that give you some opportunity to be proud of yourself? Hey, look at me. I'm not a soldier like these guys. You know, the brother, uh, the brother of, of 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 David said, "What are you doing here? Why'd you leave those few sheep? You're nothing." And David did what his brother was not willing to do, and that was to face the giant and killed him. And in doing that, he saved Israel. Remember that? He saved Israel because the the contest was, if I kill you, then you serve us. If you kill me, we'll serve you. David saved his people. So even as a young man. But then David goes on, and when he's taken into Saul's household, or, or entourage, and he begins to lead troops, he becomes a, a very successful warrior a leader of people. And he could have swelled with pride when the women sang this song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Now that's hyperbole and intended exaggeration. They're just saying, Saul has done some great things, but look at David. Look at what he's done. Incidentally, that's First Samuel 18 verse 7. What about when he became king? Here he is, the ruler of God's people. He had plenty of people bowing and scraping to, for his every word, doing his bidding. He could ask people to do anything. He had wives and children and he could, he could boast in all of those things. And David says, I'm not proud. Not in a bad way. Pride has always been a problem that man has to overcome. We could spend a whole lesson just talking about pride and the kinds of pride that need to be overcome. Someone has said, you know, pride of face, place, race. All of those can be dangers. 
Proverbs 6.17 says that a proud look is one of the things that God hates. You can see why it is to our advantage not to be filled with pride because God hates it. He doesn't just think it's not a good idea. He hates it. The second part of Psalm 105, 101, excuse me just a minute. Go back to Psalm 101 for just a moment. I think I've got this correct. I hope so anyway. When you come down to verse 5, this also is attributed to David. He talks about, I will sing, verse 1, verse 2, I will behave, I will walk. Verse 3, I will set nothing before my eyes. I hate the work of, of, of those who fall away. I, verse 4, I will not know wickedness. And then when you get to verse 5, I think David is still the spokesman. It's not God, it's David. And the latter part of the verse, he says, The one who has a hearty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. David says, I want to be like God. God hates pride. God will not put up with those who are full of pride. And I don't want to do it either. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to put up with those who are filled with pride. Well, what does pride do to us? Well, first of all, it causes us to think better of ourselves than we really are. It's a misunderstanding of our value. We're swelled up, puffed up, full of ourselves. And when that happens, we do wrong. I want you to look at a couple of verses in the New Testament. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12. Verse 3, written to Christians. Romans 12, 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, now remember this is written to Christians, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Don't be drunk with your own sense of self-importance. Think soberly. And if you think soberly, you recognize, I'm not, the, I'm not great. Look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Boy, there are plenty of people in the world who have disregarded that, and they think they're it. They, they're never wrong. They never make a mistake. They, they never have anybody who can tell them anything. We're reminded of the parable also of Jesus. If you look at Luke 18, look at Luke 18.
And look at the way that the, par- that the chapter begins before the parable. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Um, and, and so he went on and he started talking about this judge and the widow and so on. And then in verse 6 about the unjust judge. Verse 9. Also he spoke this parable. Now the primary point of the parable was keep praying. But verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's the parable that's going to follow. Two men go up. He had talked one parable. Here's another parable he's going to tell. Two men go up to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you know the story. The Pharisee thought he was perfect and wonderful. And almost as if he were saying to God, you're so fortunate that I'm yours. But the other part of it is that pride not only causes us to lift ourselves up too high, it also causes us, if we're lifted up so high in our opinion, to look down on others. Because the very same parable in Luke 18 shows that the Pharisee says, I thank you, I'm not like this man. I'm not like him. I'm so much better than him. And that's what pride does to people. It makes them think they're better than they really are and that others are not as good as they are. While I was studying about this, something something struck me that I should have known this. Hey, I'm an old guy. I should have known this years ago. Look at in, in Matthew. Look at Matthew 17. And 18. You remember what happens in Matthew 17, the beginning of the chapter? Jesus is transfigured. Transfigured. And, and, and that happens on a mountain before Peter, James, and John. Now let me ask you about this. Because I don't know why I hadn't thought about this earlier. Should have. Do you think they told anybody what happened? Do you think that momentous occasion when the Lord is shown in His glory and when God speaks from heaven, do you think they would have said, I'm not going to tell anybody that? Or do you think the first opportunity they had to tell the other apostles about what they had seen, do you think they told them? I do. I believe they would. Wouldn't you? And and what's important about that is that when you look at the beginning of chapter 18, which is in immediate proximity of chapter 17, it says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, my opinion, which is not worth anything unless you realize it's always right, No, my opinion. They could have been saying, are Peter, James, and John the greatest in the kingdom? We honestly want to know, are they the greatest in the kingdom? They were with the Lord on that very special occasion. The rest of us were not there. Are they greater? I think what they were really saying is, I know they were there. Are they greater than us? 
They're not greater than us. No matter what the, what the real thrust of the question is, Jesus, in answering them, first uses an illustration to call a little child to him and set him in the midst and say in verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Get off your high horse. Quit thinking about who's the greatest. And be humble. Humble like a child in the best child's behavior. Well, the second thing that David renounced was arrogance in Psalm 131. He says in, in Psalm 131, neither do I concern, no, nor are my, nor are my eyes lofty. That is not a different idea, I don't think. I believe it is a parallel statement and it is uh, intended to show the same thing by using slightly different words. The, the idea of Lofty eyes is a parallel statement. Um, the, the, the term lofty is used, there, there are several different Hebrew words that are translated lofty. Sometimes it's used in a good way. God is high and lofty. But, but in this case, it's not used in a good sense. Now, look back at Psalm 18. There are some occasions when it's definitely, clearly not good. Psalm 18 and verse 27. 18:27. For you will save the humble people, humble people, and will bring down haughty looks. There's a there's a definite difference between. A humble person and one who has eyes that are lifted up in arrogance. Now look at Proverbs. Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 and verse 13. 30, 13. There is a generation. I like this because it's almost like he has to catch his breath. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. <laughs> I don't know if you can lift your eyelids up, but it's sort of like so you can look down on somebody. When you lift your eyelids, your nose lifts with it, you're looking down on somebody. There are a number of other examples I don't need to give you. Now, look at the second part of verse 1. And he says here, neither do I concern myself with great matters nor with things too profound for me. Your outline deals with the idea of recognizing our limitations. And, and that's a very good thought. And this is a key to humility and a guard against pride and arrogance. And, and the question that we fundamentally have to ask ourselves is this. Must God answer 
every question we have. There is something about us that makes us think that though He is the God of heaven, our Creator, the one greater than us, that God is answerable to us. And so we sometimes not only ask, we demand. I want to know why this happened. I want to know why you let this happen. I think Deuteronomy 29.29, and this is mentioned on your outline, is the key to this. Look at, at that statement, please, in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. Are you there? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There's a couple of things to note in that. There is an acknowledgement that there are unrevealed things that belong to God. That shouldn't bother you at all. In fact, you ought to be thankful that God hadn't revealed everything to us. That there are some things that we don't know, God doesn't want us to know, He will not let us know, and that's okay. But the other part of it is what's equally important for us to understand, and that is God has revealed some things, and those are ours. He wants us to know some things, and those things not only belong to us, but to our children. We need to pass those on because they have been revealed. And the purpose of revealing what he wants to reveal is so that we can do all that he wants us to do. He has told you everything that you need to know so that you can do everything he wants you to do. Pretty simple, isn't it? Now, no matter how much we want to know, there are some things we will not know. And... Eddie listed some examples. One of them is human suffering. That's one of the most perplexing of all. Why me? (laughs) Why me? Why my loved ones? Why someone I care about? Why don't the wicked suffer proportionately like the righteous do? How can a wicked man live a long life easy life, and hear a faithful Christian not live a long life. How can it be? I believe there are some answers that are given that's not the purpose of this lesson to delve into them. But here's the problem. Sometimes even the answers that are given, people are not satisfied with. If someone would say, well, yes, that's what God's Word says, and I accept that, and I'll go with that, that's one thing. But somebody says, well, I don't care what it says. I just don't understand. If that's the case, then it means you don't want to understand. Not that you don't understand. You don't want to understand. Because if you understand, then all that you have to understand is God has not given you every answer to human suffering. I mentioned looking at books on Psalms. Boy, you can find a plethora of books on human suffering. 
And I suppose if you read every one of them from cover to cover and digested every thought that was there, you'd still have some questions. Job, in the Old Testament, of course, thought that God needed to answer why he, that is Job, was suffering. And when that book comes to its conclusion, you find that God didn't answer what Job wanted him to answer. In fact, what God really said to Job, in essence, was, you trust me. That's all you need to do. You don't need to know about everything that I know. You just need to trust me. Sometimes when people don't find an answer to their questions, they reach the wrong conclusion. God's not fair. God's not fair. He doesn't really care. He doesn't love us. And when people reach those conclusions incorrectly, it is the devil who wins. The devil wins. Because that's what he'd like for you to believe, that God... You know, that's how this all started off. In the garden, you remember, has God said, here's what will really happen. Don't trust God. He's used that ploy a million, billion times, perhaps. Don't trust God. How about answers to prayers? Why isn't every request we make granted? We're God's children. God loves us. And He bids us to seek Him and to pray to Him. Why doesn't He answer the way we want Him to answer? Why doesn't He do what we want Him to do? In, in Matthew 6, verse 10, our Lord said, Your will be done, as He prayed. Your will be done. I'm going to preach on that pretty soon, I hope, Lord willing. The will of God. Do we understand the will of God? And are we willing to submit to it to say, your will be done? Not my will, your will. Even the Son of God on the earth had to say, not my will, but your will. Now, are you better than He is? If you're not better than Jesus is, then you and I both need to say, your will be done, not my will. I don't always know what the best will of God is, nor do you. And that's why it's safest to say, your will be done. Because it will always be right. Think about world affairs. <laughs> Whew. be especially troubling today. Why does God allow a madman to make all kinds of threats? I don't care what the reports say about his stability. He's not. Why does God allow that? Well... Why did he allow Hitler? Why did he allow Mussolini? Why, why did he allow Stalin, Lenin, name them? Why did he allow those? We don't always know. We don't know. One of the things that frightens me sometimes is to, is to realize that God used people who were wicked like Nebuchadnezzar, to punish his own people because they were wicked. 
Any wickedness in America? Everybody goes to church every Sunday and loves the Lord and does all good things all his life. Now, is there any wickedness here? Is it possible that God may need to punish us to make us realize what's really important? We don't have the answers to all those questions. Can you look at the little book of Habakkuk? Right before Zechariah? Right after Nahum. Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. To God's people, Habakkuk wrote, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astonished, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, notice, I, God, am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. God wasn't just raising them up to be raising them up. He was raising them up to punish His people. Because they had forgotten God. They had turned from God. They were selfish and sinful. Like David, as our faith grows, we become more and more convinced that some things must be left in God's hands. There's an interesting quote that Eddie put on the bottom of the outline front page. I want you to notice that, please, if you will. A person who spends his life grasping at what is over his head may well miss what God has placed right within his reach. Interesting thought. Jesus was correct when he said in the book of Matthew, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We don't need to look ahead. In, in verse 2, David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have calmed and quieted my soul. So the, the calming is his inner being and He's quieted it. He's, he's made it to, to be not jumpy. And These are parallel statements saying the same thing. And the words are interesting. And again, we're indebted to Eddie because on the back side of your outline, to, to talk about the word calm in the Hebrew vernacular, to make level, to smooth out, to bring into a uniform state. Instead of, you know, this kind of thing, it's like, I've smoothed things out in my mind. The word quieted, to be silent, quiet resignation. I am at rest. I am at peace. Now, again, interesting thought. It doesn't say how long this took. How quickly did it occur? I think it, since it is a difficult thing, you and I know it's difficult, it may have taken a considerable amount of time. I don't know how long, but I know it took a lot of effort. I know it took a lot of effort. And David will show how it happened. Again, there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon on the back side of your lesson. It's a 2B2. Sooner may a man calm the sea or rule the wind or tame a tiger than quiet himself 
We are clamorous, uneasy, petulant, and nothing but grace can make us quiet under afflictions, irritations, and disappointments. How many times do we say, I know I shouldn't be all frazzled and afraid, but I am. And sometimes that's just a dismissal, isn't it? It doesn't really mean, I'm sorry that that's happened. It's just a statement, that's the way I'm going to live. I'm not going to be calm. I'm going to be uptight. I'm going to take everything like it's a crisis. And then David uses that interesting illustration, doesn't he? Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. That inner calm is likened to a weaned child. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, an old book, but good, under the word wean, has this. To wean in English versions of the Bible is always the translation of gamal, and that's the English letter, G-A-M-A-L in our letters. But gamal has a much wider force than merely to wean, signifying to deal fully with. To deal fully with. And then he gives a reference of Psalm 13, verse 6, that you can mark down, we won't go to. Hence, as applied to a child, Gamal covers the whole period of nursing and care until the weaning is complete. The period in ancient Israel extended to about three years. I've read a number of different other explanations that say from 18 months even to a little bit longer than three years. But, but anyway, the article says, And when it, is, when it was finished, the child was mature enough to be entrusted to strangers. And the illustration he gives is for Samuel chapter 1 when Hannah takes Samuel to Eli. He had been weaned and therefore he was old enough to be turned over to the care of someone else. And as the completion of the period marked the end of the most critical stage of the child's life, it was celebrated with a feast. The weaned child no longer fretted for the breast and satisfied with its mother's affection. Using Psalm 131 verse 2, our verse, as a figure of Israel's contentment with God's care despite the smallness of earthly possessions. Well, the weaning process, and so... The reason I was telling you all that is weaning is not just stopping breastfeeding. In, in ancient cultures, of course, breastfeeding was the norm, not the exception, as it is sometimes today. But it wasn't just stopping the breastfeeding. It was getting the child to understand that there's a time to leave the breast and start eating milk, eating, eating food from the table. Now... Does a child hate the mother because it no longer has the breast? No. It, the, the mother is not doing something wrong to the child. She's doing something right because the child is going to have to mature enough that it, it can't stay at the mother's breast all its life. It has to go on. has to move forward. 
And, and that, in essence, is what David is saying. Like a weaned child, I've moved on. I'm not just going to God for what I get from God. I'm going to God to give to God. Boy, there's a great difference in that. Someone has asked this question. I think it's important. Do we love God because of what He gives us, or do we love Him because of who He is? If we only love Him because what He gives to us, then we could love the devil or anybody else, because they would give stuff to us. We love Him, we should love Him, because of what He is. And that's why we desire to serve Him. Well, verse 3 is David's exhortation. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Some have tried to say David didn't write this. and In fact, they've attributed it to Hezekiah years later. I don't think that's correct. The word for Israel is hope in the Lord. Look back at Psalm 130 and verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy and with Him is abundant redemption. Put your trust in God and you'll be okay. He knows best. Don't be haughty. Be humble. Trust Him. Depend on His goodness, not on your knowledge. Okay, let me say this very quickly. No place for haughtiness in the Lord's church. First Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, and we don't have time to read it. It is easy to admire the image of soul calmness, yet fail to address what gets us there. Oh, I want to be calm. I'm just not willing to do what it takes to be calm. The honor of being a servant, most notably illustrated by Jesus in Philippians 2. And then those additional words of Paul, this is where we'll close. Look at Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2, verse 3. Let to the church, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul understood the secret that David wrote about in Psalm 131. Let's be sure we do too. God bless you. And we'll study next week the beautiful 22nd Psalm.